I'm uh, Duncan McNichol. And I'm Dominic Norberg. And this is our episode of Not Exactly Rocket Science. So we're at the John Anderson Building. The John Anderson Building, yeah, um, which is another University of Strathclyde building. So we're here uh, to talk to a researcher. Now, our normal fare is researchers who work in a completely different field to us. Um, so biology, medical research, what have you. Um, Today, for the podcast, we've got someone who's actually in the physics department here at Strathclyde. She's the chair of biophotonics, um, and she's doing some really interesting work, but it's more of that in- interesting interdisciplinary research. Um, so we're going to talk to her about that today. So my name is Gail McConnell. I am chair of biophotonics. I'm now in the department of physics at the University of Strathclyde. Um, I trained as a physicist, mm-hmm. but I've spent more time recently probably facing biology. Okay. Uh, which was a learning curve that I never expected to happen. Right. Were you so when you were at school when you were at university you were just like physics, 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 and then it just all changed. Or? Okay. So um, I thought a long time ago that's it dates me dreadfully uh, about crashing higher biology, mm-hmm. and I went along to one class and thought. No, this is too wet and squishy for me, <laughs> and and left. Um, I was not inspired in the slightest. I looked at the textbooks; it all looked terribly dull. Um, I was wrong, <laughs> absolutely wrong. That's. Um, I feel like that's an indictment of the uh, the education system there, <laughs> or, bi- or possibly biology education specifically in that one classroom that one time. Uh, uh, yeah, it was highly localised. It's, yeah. it's not a generic problem. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so you're the chair of biophotonics. Yes. So the photonics bit of that, I, I feel like I, in theory, know something about. Um, but the the bio bit. So so what what is what's your what's your thing? What's your what, what in in some regards, my thing has changed. Okay. Because I, so I studied at Strathclyde as a, an undergraduate and a mm-hmm. PhD student, and the thing that I did then was I was really interested in lasers. Right. I loved optics. My first degree was in laser physics and optoelectronics. I really wanted to build lasers, so I did. That's what I spent my PhD doing. Um, I enjoyed it. I really liked the kind of hands-on building a thing and measuring it and trying it out. And yeah, I, I really got to grips with that. Then I moved kind of towards life sciences. Even that was not a career choice that I anticipated. I had a job lined up in industry and it fell through. Um, and that was going to be working for telecoms. Um, yeah, quite it, different. It, it, it was entirely different. But you needed something to pay the bills. So this very short-term post came up in bioscience and said, yep, okay, I'll give it a go. And I really enjoyed it. It just was not what I expected at all. Um, I'd never looked on a microscope before, so I started using microscopes and working with biologists and starting to get a sense of what do they need? And I thought, well, they need lasers. So I started building lasers specifically for bioscience. And then more recently, realising that a laser is just one of the things that they need and right. we can develop other types of instruments that biologists might need to develop new methods so that they can see something that they couldn't see before in a cell specimen. So the thing that we now do, I think, is instrumentation and methods development to support cell biology. But in doing that, we're also learning a lot of new physics. Right. So we're applying kind of what we know about optics and photonics. Um, increasingly, what we're starting to learn about cell biology and chemistry and software so it's highly multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. It's not just physics in isolation. And use that to try and understand a bit more about life. Right. So it's sort of like physics driven by biology, almost. Physics driven by biology. Um, 
It's also, though, physics driven by curiosity in optics. Okay. So as we you know, learn more about what's possible in optics, there's always something niggling at the back of my mind to say, how can we apply that to biology? Mm. And the more that we can understand about the biology, the easier that route to success is. Right. The normal academic structure is that you are a group leader and then you have you know, postdocs and PhD students, master students, undergraduate students, technicians and so on. Um, but I have someone who visits my lab who is a visiting professor. Um, and I wouldn't go as far as second in command, but he's certainly my point of reference mm-hmm. if I need to kind of challenge my own understanding of something. So he is a, a now retired person who is living in, no, almost working in Cambridge. So he's, he's set up basically a workshop in his own garden. Uh, so he was the developer um, of the confocal microscope, which is a kind of standard piece of hardware now available in most academic labs. His name's Brad Amos. Um, I met him, I don't know how long ago, about 15 years ago or so now, um, at a course that he taught in optical microscopes when I was starting to learn how to use these things. Um, and we started working together and now he visits my lab maybe every couple of months or so and he's involved in the development of one of the key projects in my lab, which is the lens. And this is specifically a big objective lens. Oh, hold on. I've heard of this. <laughs> that's, like, that's, that's not just a big lens. That's a massive, massive chunk of glass, right? So I can tell from the way you're gesturing, you're, you're assuming that this is about a metre wide. Um, it's, it's not quite that scale. So it's the, the closest I can give is that it's roughly the same length and width as an adult human arm. Okay, so if you put your arm out and wave it in front of you, yeah, that's roughly about right. Okay, plus or minus a bit. So we're imaging along the arm? Yes. So the light is going through and coming out from your fingers and then that's where the specimen sits. So, so it's it's pretty big, and that yeah. means it doesn't fit in any other microscope. So we had to build the microscope and all of the optics and the software and lasers and everything else around it. So that's been a fairly significant development. So uh, <laughs> I'm about to show my massive ignorance of optics, despite the fact that I'm doing a PhD in optics. What does that help you do? What can you do with the meso lens that you can't do? Okay, there? so so I came to the project quite late in the day. So Brad had already been working on this for probably about five years or so before I get involved. Um, the raison d'etre for the Maser lens was that he was taking the kind of initial confocal microscopes for lab to lab worldwide. And researchers loved it, except when they had a big specimen that almost couldn't be described as microscopic. And the reason there is that a normal low power objective lens, something that's got a four times magnification and a high mag 100x lens, you can see the object that you want to study but you lose the fine detail so you can't see cells or inside cells and that's often where the interesting biology is happening so Brad set about working with lens designers and various weird and wonderful people to try and design an objective lens that could fit on a normal microscope that would give the normal advantage of the confocal microscope where you can image something in 3D and see inside pretty much every single cell. Um, and it turned out that that was going to be a bit of an optical design challenge. Right. So that's why the objective lens is so massive and doesn't fit an object on any other conventional microscope stand because you need to make the optics wide mm-hmm. to focus the laser spot to such a small 
region yeah. and then you scan that around inside the tissue and hopefully see inside every single cell. So, so you get a huge field of view, but also the microscopic resolution. Yes, so you get a big field of view. So our field of view is about six millimetres. Now, I realise that in the global scenario that we live in, six millimetres isn't that big. But if you're a cell, six millimetres is giant. Mm, so yeah. you're surrounded by lots of other cells. Um, so you ha- can see lots of cells in a single image and you can see inside every cell. But we also have a long working distance, which means that rather than just a 2D image, you're building a 3D image and you can see into thick Optical, uh, thick samples mm-hmm. and really, you know, we're all three-dimensional yeah. and as soon as you start taking out one cell then you've lost its registration with anything else round about it whereas this gives us potentially the opportunity to study cells and inside cells in a more representative way. It's sort of like looking at them while they're literally still in place. Yeah, exactly. So without dissection or without... As trying to minimise the amount of dissection that's required. So it's got a really it's got a six mil field of view and it can see subcellular. Presumably, the amount of data that it can produce is astonishing. <laughs> yes. So this this is something that I had not anticipated when right. we started this project, and oh, this will be great. <laughs> this will be magnificent. Can't wait to see the images. And what size is that? Oh, oh. So. If we think about, say, a four millimetre by four millimetre field, just let's keep it easy for my, my silly brain to, to cope with, that's half a gigabyte if it's one colour. So maybe you want to stain up different parts of the cells with different dyes, so you maybe get four colours in there. So that's two gigabyte. That's at one focal plane. And then you've maybe got 100 focal planes. <laughs> so that's 200 gigabyte. Wow. So this is without trying too hard. This is... This is the kind of stuff that we are doing pretty much day in, day out now. Um, and, and that's purely like intensity data rather than any other imaging modality like lifetime or. There is nothing time resolved in those data sets because the could. stuff we're looking at at the moment is dead. It's, mm. it's preserved. It's often made transparent with chemicals to, so that we can image through the entire thickness of a piece of tissue. Um, but we could. So we've tentatively done some um, time-dependent imaging, so we can take images at certain points in time. Um, yes, it's a lot of <laughs> data. But there's there's another complexity in there, which is how do you get a camera with enough megapixels to image that at all? Mm, yes. So because of the, the fine spatial detail that you need. Mm. So for what's called Nyquist sampling, where you can extract all of the information that the lens and the specimen are giving you. We need a camera that has something like four or 500 megapixels. <laughs> now, if you think about the iPhone in your pocket, that's probably you know a couple of tens of megapixels, or 20 megapixels or so, mm. or you've got a fancy digital SLR camera. You know, 30 megapixels would be all right. So we're using a technology that's often used by the automotive industry to look at defects on like car wing, um, car doors and bonnets and so on. Um, and this relies on being able to move the chip inside the camera housing. So you take a 28 megapixel sensor, you move it through three by three positions in X and Y, mm. and that gives you an effect of 260 megapixel image. But 
to shift that chip, you know, it takes a bit of time. So we get roughly one 260 megapixel image every 10 seconds. But that's still half that's a gigabyte every 10 seconds. Yeah. The biologists wanted to go faster. The proper biologists, I should say. They want us to go faster. What they're interested in is calcium signaling, for example, inside, you know, living mouse brain. They want hundreds of frames per second. We're not quite there yet, but we have identified a camera that's going to get us a bit faster. Um, and that's where the next funding application will come in. Well, but then it sounds like half of the funding application has to be for hard drives. <laughs> You've raised an interesting point. I'm in discussion with the university about that right now for a proposal that I want to submit this week. <laughs> we'll see how that unfolds. Can you uh, can you tell us a bit more about the biological side of, um, like you say, the biologists want the the calcium um, uh, calcium signaling. Was that right? No, the calcium. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how how does how does the pipeline work, or for maybe for one specific project that you that you just had of people proposing this and you working towards making that happen like because that sounds like you're um you're visiting professor friend coming in and saying hey i've built this huge thing this is cool and biologists jump onto it and similar to the confocal realize this is amazing um do you have an example of it happening a bit more the other way around or is that just unusual like as in biologists saying we need this or you you realizing this is uh, what they need and how, how are the steps from getting an idea of what has to be detected to okay. actually building something? So almost everything that we build is starts from a biologist, con- a conversation with biologists saying, I really want to see this, or can you do this? And us realising that absolutely no, we can't do that at this time. And then we need to devise sophisticated, clever, elegant hopefully cash-inducing ways of um, managing that problem. So while we do now an increasing amount of cell biology within within my own group, it's still very much driven by community need. Because if we build an instrument that does just one thing, that's great. We publish one paper and everybody says that was really nice. But what we want to try and develop are technologies that have wider application. Um, And so if we build something, what else could we do with that? It's not just unidirectional. Would you also, uh, like when you say you have to apply for a grant with the university about hard drives <laughs> um, or about server space or whatever it is, um, would that prohibit also your ideas of disseminating something like the MISO lens? Because um, you have to, like if you want it to be successful, the place that you're sending it to or selling it to, you have to be confident that they also have the... The, say the surrounding technology for that to work and the understanding of the ramifications of the um, of, of this type of imaging and so on. Yeah, I mean, in in some regard, the problems that we face are similar to problems that other people do in advanced optical imaging are now facing. Mm. So, for example, light sheet community are generating terabytes of data, um, right. and so they're kind of familiar and comfortable with that now. Okay, um, yeah. Same goes for some of the super resolution techniques where you know it's now common to walk in and there's servers sitting in the room. That would never have happened in a biology lab, you know, twenty years or so ago. But now optical imaging has definitely moved towards more kind of computationally intensive um 
uh, requirements and so the, there's less fear around that and often when we're talking to folk and saying this is the kind of infrastructure you need oh, that's fine, they're, they're, they're not put off by that at all we're also looking not just at the hardware but the software, so wherever possible we want to use freeware and open source so any of the codes that we develop we make freely available because that's the only way that science can really work well um, we are looking at some kind of commercial and proprietary software, mainly for presentation though. It's not so much for analysis of data. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you have a data cube that's 200 gigabyte, it's how do you present that on a standard projector? Mm. Um, but we've also got some really good collaborations uh, worldwide. So we're working with um, researchers in Australia who have developed code specifically for us to show how you can take a Mesolens data cube and then zoom into whatever region focus simulate focusing up and down zoom back out and so yeah so I have quite a few project students working in different data aspects of the Mesolens as well um, how we present data how we analyse data um, because it's only really when we analyse data that we get, we get the value you get you get the the kind of wow factor from looking at the image mm-hmm. but you know, we're physicists, we want to measure things, we want numbers, so yeah. that's where the quantification aspect must come in. So I have uh, <clears throat> sort of two-part questions, sort of related. Um, when, so people send you samples and you send them back the images, like, is it is it literally they send you a biological thing packed however that is and then you send them back one or several hard drives of, of data? Um, representing that sample or yeah pretty much so the the way that it works at the moment is somebody will get in contact with me uh, say yep send us a sample uh, so it's normally dead which makes it quite a lot easier mm. uh, we image it and then it's either hard disk if we've got specific if they have specific problems downloading data we normally just put the data on a a, a share site for okay. them they download it and that's it okay um, the other thing was um, so <laughs> this is uh, dating me it's rare that I managed to date me in, in these conversations um, but uh, I remember when DVDs came in and you would get adverts on VHS tapes for DVD and they would be like oh it's way better the the picture quality is way better the sound quality is way better and then they would play a clip and like obviously that clip was at VHS quality you know um, and I think the same things happened with it you know they advertise HD on standard definition and so the question is, you said something about um, how on, you know, you, you'll tweet out an image from the Mesolens. How the hell do you tweet out an image if the data cube is 200 gigabytes? Uh, you, you need to be very clever. Right. Um, so that's, for example, where software that allows us to start off with a global image of an object and then zoom in to reveal the fine detail that you can see within that mm-hmm. global specimen becomes really useful. So a simple animated GIF of Here's an adult fruit fly. You can zoom right in. Oh, look, you can see every single cell nucleus within this and then zoom back out and then look at a different region. So you've moved for the eye into the the ovary, for example. That then allows you to, to give a sense of what is possible. But it's almost just a kind of a teaser. Yeah. Uh, and then it's go and read the full paper if you really want to see the good stuff. Fair enough, fair enough. I guess that makes sense. Um, yeah. It's just, I'm, I'm just taken aback by the amount of data. <laughs> it's just what's... It's only going to get worse. With me. Um, the, the next projects we're looking at, um, and why I'm in discussion with the university, would take us up towards a petabyte over three years. Wow. 
Yeah, I can I can see the the eyebrows raising. Um, yeah. Yeah, but again, as you as you say, it's not only storing the stuff; it's also how do you analyze all of that data? How do you condense all of that information into yeah, in, 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 into usable information? So often you will image the the global object, but what you're interested in is the relationship between, say, two organs, uh, two organs within, mm. you know, a, an insect model, and so some of that data you can potentially um, discard in your analysis. You keep it for archiving, but you can discard it for analysis. Um, but a lot of the time, to be honest, we are just choosing very carefully the experimental parameters so that we are reducing the number of animals, insects, whatever it is, that we need to have a statistically relevant sample size anyway, so that you are designing your experiments carefully to obtain only the data that you need. And then when it comes to the practical aspect of, you know, I want to measure, you know, how many nuclei there are in, in my mouse and how big they are, then there are certain things that we can do. So for example, boring but simple uh, tricks like taking a 16-bit image and turning it into 8-bit mm -hmm. and then rather than trying to look at 150 focal planes simultaneously look at the first 10, measure those then move on to the next 10 so kind of batch processing can take us quite a long way um, and both freeware and commercial software will allow you to do that It's interesting because so my my only experience of any kind was very, very large data sets is uh, astronomical data sets where, you know, if you have a sky survey, then you've just got so much going on. But um, And yeah, they seem to do a lot of sort of automatic pipelining where, you know, you feed in an enormous amount of data and then you just essentially let a computer pick out what the good data is, which I recall, I, as I was saying that, I remembered uh, being in a lecture that was given by Jocelyn Bell now. Um, where she was saying that that's a terrible thing to do, and if that, they'd done it that way, then she would never have discovered pulsars, which is true. Um, but also, what else do you do with that much data? Um, and I was so there is a question buried in here somewhere. <laughs> so you, you know, you said you could discard a large amount of that data. Is that done manually? Would you say I'm interested in this region? Throw so, everything else. So I'll give you an example, um, and I like your analogy of your uh, astrophysical data. Um, Ours is often a bit like looking at stars in the night sky because you're looking at punctate object cells within a, a 3D volume mm. and, you know, maybe you've got some landmark in there so you know, you know, what end is which. Um, and that can go a long way to help us. One of the projects which we are starting to run now is with Barry Denham in Edinburgh. So he's using the red flower beetle tribolium as an insect model to study. Um, it's actually, in his particular interest, it's the kidney or the cryptonephridia system. Um, so we needed to... He kind of presented some beetles to us in a tube. <laughs> That's lovely, thanks very much. So then we had to develop ways of removing the opaque wings and making organism transparent, and making the objects that we were interested in fluorescent so that we could image inside. So that took us a wee while, but once we get past that, we have insects... Sorry measles image data sets of these whole insects. He's only interested in the cryptonephridial system. So immediately we go to the, the abdomen end and start, you know, we, we're not interested in the head, that's great. But the more that, as a human, we start to look at these data sets, the more that we see. So initially we showed Barry these data sets and, ah, oh, that's really nice. And, oh, but look, you can see where that kind of sinuous membrane is relative to, is that gut? Oh, 
Oh, what's that? And you start questioning other aspects of the data that, you know, if you had only imaged a very tiny volume from within that kidney-like structure, you would have missed a lot of the anatomy that potentially is very important for how the kidney functions um, and behaves when it's sitting about. So essentially, you're saying that quite often we don't know what we don't know. And looking looking at looking at big pictures, quite literally, kind of um, lets our brain put together or let let's our brain come up with assumptions that we didn't even that we that we would have never thought of before if you just looked at one small section of or if you'd stuck with your initial question essentially. Yeah. It's it's also that you're right. Um, it's also that the standard way to study, for example, these red flower beetles is to dissect them. Mm. But as soon as you dissected them, you've lost a lot of the structure. So you mm. don't know, for example, you know, where does the gut sit next to the kidney or, you know, other, how does gas get in? And, you know, th- there's other important questions that come up that couldn't necessarily easily be answered using dissection. I'm just going to talk about the mesa lens because that, that's been the bulk of the conversation we've had, I think. Um, so you, you've uh, helped develop and, and work with now and um, operate and built and operate um, the only mesa lenses. The only mesa lenses? Uh, there are three at Strathclyde and there's now one in Plymouth. Right. So <laughs> nearly three quarters of the mesa yes. lenses. Um, where the mesa lenses is, and this is going to massively undersell it, but it's basically a really big lens. Um, it's a way of being able to look, uh, to do sort of confocal microscopy with a, a really big field of view um, so that you can see with microscopic detail across a millimetric scale so you can take uh, an object a 3d object and image every single bit of it at microscopic in, in, with microscopic detail which just opens up all of these new avenues for biologists in terms of being able to see what things look like in situ and being able to um, catch things out the corner of their eye but also to um, see a, a whole population of cells um, rather than just looking at, at through their tiny keyhole it's like opening the door basically is that is that a mesa lens is that is that what you <laughs> i'd say yeah i think i think that's a really good summary um yeah we often draw a parallel with super resolution that that really sharpens the eyes but it only sharpens eyes of one cell at a time yeah whereas what we're doing is using conventional resolution but of thousands of cells, hundreds of thousands of cells. Sounds amazing. It really does. I'm biased, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, cool. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. That was a really interesting chat that we had with Gail. Um, I uh, I learned a lot. Um, I feel like my summary at the end, maybe I just felt very concise, but I guess that's because I understood. <laughs> You know, like I, yeah. I can really I was, see. The, I was thinking exactly the same that we maybe have to apologise because that that sounded a little like like cheating, you know, because you. Yeah, almost, almost flippant, almost like it. It wasn't important, but it's just it's it's game changing. It really is, you know. Like I can see even without talking to, you know, like a lifelong biologist about it, I can see how that capability is just something that would be amazingly useful. And I mean, from the sense of it, it's already opened up a lot of avenues of new research. Interesting, though, how difficult it is to deploy tools that everyone acknowledges, yep, super useful, or well, apart from maybe a select few, but generally people acknowledge, yep, very useful thing to have, 
and so on, and yet there are four of them in the world. Yeah, yeah, and people are sending samples to to have them imaged rather than imaging them in their own labs at um, their own time. Yeah, imaging them again if they say, "Oh, something went wrong here." Yeah. But um, but I guess that's that's just what new technology is like, what cutting edge technology is like. I guess. do wonder how long it took for confocals to to sort to, of really take uh, off, to have their breakthrough. Because they seem off. very. I mean, the biologists that we work with seem quite matter of fact about confocal microscopy. When they talk about putting something under the microscope, yeah. they don't even say confocal anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's just oh yeah, these well, are some... obviously. If they say I've booked a microscope, it means I've booked a confocal microscope. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Um, you can uh, recommend us to your friends. If you, if you enjoyed it, recommend us to your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, don't. And hopefully you see that science isn't dry. Science is full of people, real people, and it's, with very unique characters. Yeah. And it's big and it's complicated and you can find your place in it if you want a place in it. Follow us. Go to... Not exactly rocketscience.fm. And um, check it out. Yeah, absolutely. There are also pictures of all the people that we interview. There are. If they haven't turned up in your podcast feed, which they won't in some podcast apps, but they will in others. Um, I knew that. But if you're interested, you know, go to the website. They're all there. And if you hover over them, they, they come into color and the words go away. Don't worry. Not leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs>